Hey Nick, so I've been using the OBG project a lot recently to help me remember some of the GYN things that I started to forget after my first year of MFM fellowship and also on a lot of the primary care stuff like on today's episode for asthma and pregnancy. Yeah, you know, as these oral boards draw closer to us, Faye, I worry more and more about my ability to remember some of these things, but thankfully the OBG project literally fits in my pocket and I can pull it up on my phone with my library from OBG first find everything that I need and have probably forgotten. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can get one year of OBG first absolutely free. You just go ahead and enter um, your email and let them know who you are and they'll get back to you to let you get that subscription service. You can head over to our website, reagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you can get signed up for OBG first. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. Kriags over coffee. Today on the podcast, we're going to go over a topic that I think, Faye, you and I are encountering a little bit more often in fellowship now, but I think depending on where you are in the country, you may see more frequently than the other folks, and that's sickle cell disease and pregnancy. So what are our learning objectives today? So today we're going to briefly review the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease, its complications, and its inheritance patterns. We're going to discuss the evolution of screening recommendations and best practices for counseling for sickle cell trait and hemoglobinopathy in general. Um, And then finally, we're going to understand the important and unique points in the care of those with sickle cell disease from preconception all the way through the postpartum period. So Nick, let's get started. First of all, what is sickle cell disease? Great question. Sickle hemoglobin or hemoglobin S is the result of a point mutation in the beta hemoglobin gene. So if you remember, there's a hemoglobin molecule that's made up of four alpha chains and two beta chains. So we're focusing on this beta side right now. And sickle cell trait is the result of a point mutation in one of those beta globin genes. Sickle hemoglobin results from the inheritance of at least one sickle mutation and then co-inheritance of another beta hemoglobin modifying gene. So you have sickle hemoglobin as one of your alleles or traits, and then you could classically have homozygosity for sickle hemoglobin on the other allele, but sickle disease also manifests with co-inheritance of hemoglobin C, and that's known as hemoglobin SC disease, beta thalassemia, and then also other forms of beta hemoglobin mutations. Sickle disease, that is, causes significant pain crises in multi-system disease, and it's thought to arise primarily from a hemolytic anemia as well as vasoocclusion. From an infection perspective, splenic infarction is actually really common from this vasoocclusion early in life, and so as you're thinking through a differential for folks with sickle cell disease, they are often in a hyposplenic immunocompromised state. And so that's, I think, an important background information to have as you think about sort of infectious morbidity for these patients. Manifestations of sickle disease can be seen as we just talked about, particularly in infection, um, and most notably a susceptibility to pneumonia and a related but indistinguishable complication known as the acute chest syndrome, which we'll talk more about today. 
Obviously, sickle cell disease is known for anemia and pain from vasoocclusive crises as well. Um, less common complications but important to always keep in mind can be stroke and myocardial infarctions, significant renal disease, retinopathy, particularly with hemoglobin SC disease, and then, of course, what we worry about are pregnancy complications, with some of those including increased risks for growth restriction, preeclampsia, stillbirth, and maternal mortality. It's a really, really significant disease when present. It's definitely life-altering. Um, and so it's important for us as physicians or clinicians to be able to recognize sickle cell disease when it's present and then to be able to go through the manifestations of, or the various manifestations, I should say, um, of clinical care. So, Faye, I think one of the questions that often comes up for us in prenatal counseling looking for counseling folks about their risk to have a child affected by sickle cell disease is who should be screened and how should we be screening them? Yeah. So right now, screening for sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease is part of universal newborn screening in all 50 states in the United States. And screening in adults is done via hemoglobin electrophoresis and should be offered if we have a partner that is known to have sickle cell disease and the other partner does not know their carrier status or a patient does not know their carrier status and just wishes to know. It's important to remember that race and ethnicity-based screening is ineffective and problematic in identifying at-risk individuals and and so anyone who desires testing should be offered it. The ACOG Practice Bulletin 78 on hemoglobinopathies in pregnancy, which was updated in 2007, notes that ethnicity is not always a good predictor of risk, though focuses to a larger degree on observed ethnic group differences. Similarly, ACOG um, Committee Opinion 691 endorses hemoglobinopathy screening via CBC for all women and electrophoresis for women who are suspected of hemoglobinopathy based on their risk of their ethnicity, but we would probably anticipate an update to this in the near future. And other ACOG guidance now does endorse offering hemoglobinopathy screening universally, including the ACOG Frequently Asked Questions document for patients on carrier screening. There are also risks, though, to screening that your patients should be made aware of, particularly with respect to genetic discrimination. So, for example, health insurance markets and employer-based plans are prohibited from this through the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, but these protections do not extend to other things like life, disability, or long-term care insurance markets, employers with fewer than 15 employees, the U.S. military and the TRICARE health system, the Indian Health Service, the Veterans Health Administration, and Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. So, there is a possibility that if your patient screens positive for sickle cell disease, sickle cell trait, whatever it may be, that that could really impact their ability to get health insurance or other types of insurances. Mm -hmm. And then a quick plug here for licensed genetic counselors. They are awesome. They also may know when your patients may benefit from different types of screening. And so if you have access to them, we really recommend listening in on a counseling session with them and how they talk about hemoglobinopathies with your patients. All right, Nick, so let's kind of focus our um, discussion now on pregnancy itself. So what should we do to optimize pregnancy in the preconception period for those people who actually have sickle cell disease? Yeah, so I think we'll talk kind of initially about some testing things for us to consider in the lead up to pregnancy. And then we'll also talk next from there about medication management um, as sort of the second side of this coin. So I'll focus first on sort of what testing and things you should 
do with sickle cell disease. But I think that in terms of like a preconception counseling visit, the takeaway should be that most pregnancies can be managed successfully and result in live birth with proper surveillance and preparation. Um, we talked a little bit about genetic screening just now. Um, and again, if you are seeing someone with sickle cell disease, as we previously mentioned, partner screening is strongly recommended as the likelihood of a fetus having hemoglobinopathy would be 0% if the partner is not a carrier or 50% if the partner is a carrier. Um, that can subsequently inform the approach to other prenatal genetic testing and subsequent decisions for the pregnancy if the patient desires that. Baseline preeclampsia screening is probably the next thing that I would focus on um, because hypertension can be present due to renal disease in patients with sickle cell. Um, sickle nephropathy on its own can result in significant proteinuria that, again, it's good to have a baseline value for before you start through the pregnancy. So I would consider getting a baseline 24-hour urine protein in addition to just other chemistries like LFTs, a BUN, and creatinine. Ophthalmologic disease, regardless of the disease state, tends to worsen in pregnancy, um, and this is particularly true for those with sickle disease. Um, so having a tie-in to an ophthalmologist and getting frequent eye exams as clinically indicated is appropriate. Other laboratories to consider include hemoglobin and iron studies. Again, folks with sickle disease are often anemic, but because of their hemolysis, they're often actually iron overloaded. Those who are iron overloaded should potentially delay pregnancy until they get chelation therapy because chelation therapy cannot be given in pregnancy. And one important caveat for folks with sickle disease and iron overload is that prenatal vitamins with iron should obviously be avoided in that particular group, which is a little bit, um, a little bit different than our typical prenatal care patients where we're often seeing iron deficiency. Baseline urine cultures are also really important, and consideration of urine culture screening by trimester is worth it um, in sickle disease. Um, asymptomatic bacteria and UTIs are more common in sickle disease and are often more difficult to treat due to their underlying renal disease. Pulmonary function tests can also be considered in those with severe sickle disease. Those with severe sickle disease may have already had pulmonary emboli, um, but anyways are at higher risk of pulmonary emboli, as well as reactive airway disease. Um, it's also nice to have baseline PFTs when you're thinking about acute chest syndrome um, to be able to compare to during that evaluation. On a similar vein, echocardiography can also be useful in severe cases to assess for underlying pulmonary hypertension that may result from pulmonary emboli um, or other chronic lung disease. And then lastly, in terms of the testing, but probably the most important blood test that you can get is the type and screen. Again, folks with sickle cell disease, transfusion, as we'll talk about later, is not always the answer in terms of treatment for them, but they likely have experienced blood transfusion in the past. Um, because of that, multiple antibodies due to alloimmunization may be present on screening. Those Kell antibodies, those Duffy antibodies, those big C, little c antibodies that we talked about way back in the management of alloimmunization episode. Again, some of those may be significant for the fetus in the form of hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn. And so if a patient is positive for an offending antibody, this will allow for time for partner testing to occur to determine if the fetus may ultimately be at risk for HDFN. Faye, why don't I kick it over to you to talk next about medications? 
Sure. So you may see a lot of medications for patients who have sickle cell disease and are thinking about getting pregnant. So the first I think that we should talk about is hydroxyurea, or you may have heard hydrea. So this is generally a mainstay of sickle cell disease management in non-pregnant patients, and it works by increasing hemoglobin F production. And I didn't realize this, but we actually, you know, have somebody who has sickle cell disease and actually is a pretty stable patient, not on any medications. And, you know, when I looked through her history, I realized it was because she naturally produces high levels of hemoglobin F, and that hmm. allows for you to not sickle. Remember that the gamma globulin is not affected by sickling. So again, you have this decreased concentration overall of hemoglobin S. Unfortunately, in the periconception period, there's not much data regarding its use, um, but guidelines do recommend discontinuing in the three months prior to conception, though the limited data that exists suggests that there really isn't an increase in major anomalies during pregnancy. The second thing to think about during pregnancy and before pregnancy is folic acid. Due to increased red cell turnover, there's generally a consensus that folate supplementation should be higher in those with sickle cell disease. So they should be on four milligrams daily, which is 10 times more than uh, what is recommended universally. Other medications that you may come across are things like iron chelators, and these should be discontinued for conception as they are associated with some risks of anomalies. Other medications you may come across are things like antihypertensives, and often patients with sickle cell disease may be taking like an ACE inhibitor or an ARB because they are renal protective, and we do know that patients with long-term sickle cell disease can develop a renal injury. However, again, these are teratogenic and should be replaced with agents that are safe in pregnancy. Other medications are things like pain medications, which is a really big one. Some patients who have sickle cell disease may be on chronic opioids, which are standard of care for management of severe pain in sickle cell disease. And patients who are on standing doses of opioids should be counseled with regards to risks of things like neonatal abstinence syndrome, but should not be routinely discontinued from their pain medication. Things like acetaminophen, non-medicinal strategies for pain control are also appropriate, and even short courses of NSAIDs may be appropriate in some circumstances, um, but generally are avoided in pregnancy for the long term. Low-dose aspirin should be considered in pregnancies of patients affected by sickle cell disease to also help reduce that preeclampsia risk. And then last but not least is to consider anticoagulation. Patients with sickle cell disease are not typically on anticoagulants just for the sickle cell disease, but again, we talked about their risk of things like having DVTs and PEs in the past, and so because of that, they might be on anticoagulation, and in those cases, you should treat them like other patients with that history. Without a history of a high-risk DVT or PE, pharmacologic thromboprophylaxis should just be considered with any hospitalization given the high risk of clotting. So thinking about, you know, someone who had a C-section, someone who is in the hospital for a long time for their pain control for crises. A couple other things, Nick. What about things like um, just general care for people before they even get pregnant or after like immunizations or breastfeeding? Good question. So immunizations, as we mentioned earlier, sickle cell disease results often in this like functional hyposplenia, right? And so immunizations to definitely be up to date um, for folks with sickle cell disease. And you also have to remember some of those other ones that in folks with hyposplenism, the vaccination should be on board ideally and ones that we don't typically give to people um, outside of that context. So people with sickle cell disease should have meningococcal vaccines on board, the pneumonia, pneumovax vaccines on board, um, and haemophilus influenzae type B um, boosters as well, ideally prior to the start of pregnancy. 
Breastfeeding for sickle cell disease patients should still be encouraged. Again, we like the infant bonding and it's not associated with any harm for sickle cell disease patients. The one caveat or challenge is that if your patient does benefit from the use of hydroxyurea, it may be wise to delay the resumption of hydroxyurea in those who are breastfeeding as it's really not well studied at all in terms of its excretion into breast milk and subsequent effects on infants. So Faye, I think one of the most common reasons for anapartum admission for sickle cell disease has to be the pain crisis in pregnancy. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, and I think that, you know, we've talked on the show previously about all the other things like preterm labor and sepsis type of stuff and all of that that would definitely pertain to sickle cell disease. But I think the pain crisis is what we should try to get into next. How do we manage a pain crisis? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think in anybody who has sickle cell disease, not only if they're pregnant, we need to first try to avoid triggers for pain crisis as best possible. So things like avoiding dehydration or hypoxia, acidosis, infection, and cold temperatures, um, which are all common triggers. So trying to make sure that your patient is well hydrated even during pregnancy. Importantly, termination of pregnancy and delivery in the postpartum period are two common times for pain crises to develop. So make sure that your patients are getting appropriate hydration and monitoring, which are key at these critical time points. With crisis, one key management point is reversal or correction of the trigger. And both in or out of pregnancy, hydration is often the key to that. So you may see a lot of patients come in who have a pain crisis and then we are aggressively hydrating them. Oxygen therapy is often also needed due to inadequate oxygen delivery during vaso-occlusive crises. So you may have people who come in for their pain crises and automatically you're the good nurses who are um, in the ED and have seen this, they're going to like get them started on oxygen, get an IV and get them started on fluids and probably coming to you for pain medication, which is what we'll talk about next. Pain control definitely should be aggressive and opioids are the therapy of choice in the case of pain crises, especially if acetaminophen or Tylenol is not satisfactory. The patient's experience and their hematologist's knowledge of the patient are often of significant benefit in these situations. The patient can sometimes tell you that, you know, whenever I have a pain crisis, this is how much pain medication I need to actually get comfortable. It's always important to keep your diagnostician hat on. So pain crises can often be part of or precede significant events for patients with sickle cell disease. And these include things like a DBT or PE, acute chest syndrome, or even stroke. So each complication of sickle cell disease should be a podcast management on its own. And, you know, we don't have a time to talk about all of them. But it's really important that you approach this in a multidisciplinary way to ensure good patient outcomes. If a patient or family member is telling you that this pain specifically is different, you should listen to them because this can be a clue that something else is going on that is outside of the realm of their usual pain crises. And definitely use your hematology colleagues to guide you, consult them during pregnancy. And often management will consist of at least a CBC chemistry panel with LFTs and a chest x-ray along with what we talked about before. Nick, I think for the last part of this podcast, I'd like to turn it over to you and ask a little bit about acute chest in pregnancy because this is not something that I encountered very much at all in residency and just started encountering now, um, now that I'm living in Philadelphia. Yeah, I think again, acute chest is the thing that when you do consult hematology for that initial 
discussion of we have admitted a patient in pain crisis they are always on top of and want to know like is she complaining of chest pain what is the pain like is it different than prior pain crises and there's a good reason for that too because acute chest is the leading cause of death in sickle cell disease um, and it can occur in pregnancy too in terms of the diagnosis of acute chest, you need to have radiographic evidence of consolidation. So again, that new finding on a chest x-ray, along with at least one of the following clinical criteria, a fever over 38.5 degrees Celsius, an over 2% decrease in the baseline oxygen saturation, tachypnea clinically, intercostal retractions, nasal flaring, or the use of accessory muscles, and then symptoms such as chest pain, significant cough, wheezing, or rawls. This probably sounds a lot like someone who has pneumonia, um, and it's a good thought to have because acute chest syndrome and pneumonia, unfortunately for sickle patients, are completely indistinguishable. A lot of the management thus overlaps, but it's important to again keep your diagnostician hat on to be able to try and help distinguish this and use your colleagues to, with experience in those with sickle cell disease to be able to help you make a determination. So what is the treatment for acute chest syndrome? So again, a lot of it overlaps with pain crisis. You want to treat pain aggressively, get aggressive fluid resuscitation to prevent hypovolemia, use oxygen liberally. Heme will probably weigh in with you about whether the patient requires blood transfusion, whether that be a simple transfusion or something called an exchange transfusion where blood is actually let and then replaced with donor blood. With respect to the actual chest symptoms, and again, the concern for pneumonia versus acute chest, you want to do things like bronchodilators and use broad spectrum antibiotics. These are usually empiric to cover things like chlamydia trachomatis, strep, pneumonia, haemophilus influenzae, and oftentimes you're using something like a third-generation cephalosporin alongside a macrolide. So think like ceftriaxone plus azithromycin. Again, very closely aligned with something that's like a severe community-acquired pneumonia or a hospital-acquired pneumonia. Escalation of care is not uncommon, unfortunately, when you're worried about acute chest syndrome. As we mentioned, mechanical ventilation is often a consequence of this, and so these patients may ultimately need to go to the ICU for further management. The last thing that we'll mention in the podcast is that, you know, we mentioned exchange transfusion and simple transfusion just a moment ago, and with sickle cell disease in general, coming back away from the acute chest syndrome just on its own is that transfusion can be the answer, but not always for sickle cell disease. And I think that those unfamiliar when they see like a hemoglobin of six or seven, maybe like ready to jump and like drop a unit or two in. But remember in sickle disease that there's generally a lower threshold to transfuse even in pregnancy than outside of pregnancy. Um, but again, talk with your hematology colleagues before automatically transfusing. All right, Faye, I think that does it for us in terms of this podcast on sickle cell disease and pregnancy. So why don't we try to summarize quickly? Sure. So the first part of the podcast, we talked about what exactly sickle cell disease was. And remember, it results from a point mutation in the beta hemoglobin gene that leads to hemoglobin S. Sickle cell disease then results from the inheritance of at least one sickle mutation and a co-inheritance of another beta hemoglobin modifying gene. So something, again, like another hemoglobin S gene, but could also be things like hemoglobin C, and so you can get hemoglobin SC disease. The disease then leads to significant pain crises and other multi-system disease due to hemoglobin hemolytic anemia, 
um, as well as vaso-occlusion. So the big things to remember is that from an infection perspective, you can get a splenic infarct early in life. And so basically these patients act like they are hyposplenic. And you can also get things like infection, anemia, again, pain from those vaso-occlusive crises, and very scary things like stroke or MI, renal disease, retinopathy, and other pregnancy complications. We talked next about genetic screening for sickle disease. And right now, screening for sickle trait and disease is part of universal newborn screening in all 50 states. Screening in adults is done via hemoglobin electrophoresis and should be offered definitely if a partner is known to have sickle disease and the other partner does not know their carrier status or if a patient doesn't know their carrier status and wishes to know. Importantly, race and ethnicity-based screening is ineffective and problematic in identifying at-risk individuals, and so those who desire testing should be offered it. There are risks to genetic screening, though, particularly with respect to genetic discrimination in certain places, such as life disability long-term care insurance markets or federal employees' health benefits program. Um, patients may be subject to dis genetic discrimination with respect to their health insurance or other products with respect to long-term care needs, and so it's important that they're aware of those. One group of people that can help you navigate that and help your patients navigate that are licensed genetic counselors. So again, a plug, if you have access, definitely spend some time with them and pick their brains. In terms of optimizing pregnancy, we need to um, remember that most pregnancies can be managed successfully and result in live birth. However, we should consider partner screening if status is not known, um, discuss baseline preeclampsia screening, things like a baseline 24-hour urine protein, baseline labs, um, and also, you know, hypertension that may be caused due to underlying renal disease. Ophthalmologic screening is also recommended, and also looking at things like hemoglobin, iron studies, and potentially um, need for chelation therapy if a patient is iron overloaded due to multiple transfusions. Baseline urine culture should also be used to screen for asymptomatic bacteria and UTIs, pulmonary function tests can be done, and even echocardiograms can be done in cases where you need to assess for underlying pulmonary hypertension. And finally, the type and screen is one of the most important tests because these patients often have had multiple transfusions and may have developed certain antibodies that could lead to hemolytic disease of the fetus or newborn. Medication management with respect to sickle disease and pregnancy. Again, hydroxyurea, though generally a mainstay of sickle disease in the non-pregnant patient, works by increasing the production of hemoglobin F. Regrettably, in the periconception period, should not be continued because there's not much data regarding its use, um, ideally three months prior to conception. Folic acid should be increased in those with sickle disease, ideally 4 milligrams versus the 400 micrograms that's generally recommended in low-risk pregnancies. Iron chelators should be discontinued if patients are needing iron chelation therapy. Antihypertensive medications often are things like ACE inhibitors or ARBs in those who, with sickle cell disease that are not pregnant, but these are teratogenic and should be replaced with agents safe in pregnancy. Pain medication should be continued, particularly opioid medications that are the standard of care in sickle disease. Anticoagulation may be present, and if history indicates it, like those with a history of a DVT or PE, then you should also just treat them like they have that history in pregnancy. And then remember, too, that immunization should be up to date working with those things that include meningococcal pneumonia and haemophilus influenzae vaccines because of the functional hyposplenism. 
postpartum breastfeeding should still be encouraged, but hydroxyurea may need to be delayed with breastfeeding. In terms of pain crises in pregnancy, we treat them very similarly to pain crises outside of pregnancy. So remember to avoid those triggers for pain crises, and that are, those are things like dehydration, hypoxia, acidosis, infection, and cold temperatures. And remember trying to reverse any of those causes. So again, kind of your biggest things when someone comes in with a pain crisis is to put in an IV, give them fluid, give them oxygen, and start pain medication. Pain control should be aggressive, and opiates are the therapy of choice, and really it should be based on the patient's experience and also their hematologist's experience. Remember that to keep your diagnostician hat on, pain crisis can often be part of or precede a significant event for a sickle cell patient. And these include things like thrombotic events, including things like PEs, acute chest and or strokes. And so make sure that you are listening to your patient, especially if they tell you that that pain is different. Also, remember to get things like a CBC, chemistry panel with LFTs, and a chest x-ray. We ended the podcast today talking about acute chest syndrome as the leading cause of death in sickle cell disease. It's defined as a new radiodensity on a chest radiograph accompanied by one of the following, either a fever over 38.5 degrees Celsius, a greater than 2% decrease in the baseline oxygen saturation, clinical symptoms such as tachypnea, use of accessory muscles or intercostal retractions for breathing, significant chest pain, cough, wheezing, or rawls. The treatment of acute chest syndrome overlaps significantly with pain crisis, so use your HEMA friends to be able to treat this successfully. Again, you want to treat the pain, use significant fluids to prevent hypovolemia, liberal oxygen, blood transfusion, considering with hematology about simple versus exchange transfusion and when transfusion is appropriate, and then clinically also using things like bronchodilators and broad-spectrum antibiotics, generally a third-generation cephalosporin alongside a macrolide to treat pneumonia, which is indistinguishable from the acute chest syndrome. All right. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on CreogsOverCoff1, on Twitter, on Coffee on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also support us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. Give us some love, and we may give you a shout-out on the show or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have questions, corrections for the show, or also ideas for future shows, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.